Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. It's a very exciting, very exciting time for our church um, to have new ministries launching and uh, to have a new opportunity for the kids to play in the back. And let me encourage you, it's a great time to plug in. It's a great time to step up and volunteer it's a great time to give. God is doing some things among our community, and uh, it's just an exciting time, even in the midst of this troubling time, right, in our culture. It's a very challenging time, so uh, I'm thankful to be your pastor. I'm thankful that you're here today, and I'm thankful to get into God's Word today because we're continuing this series called Living Greatly, the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll remember from last week that we uh, were challenged by Jesus not to have a superficial outward righteousness, but to really have a righteousness that goes into the very depths of our heart, that goes into our motives and our, and our thoughts and, uh, and our desires. And it's interesting today, I mean, today is Valentine's Day, so on some level all of us have uh, the idea of relationship on our mind. Um, and today Jesus actually teaches about relationships broadly, not necessarily only romantic relationships, but he does teach about how we relate to each other as human beings in this next passage that we're going to look at. But I have to warn you, um, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, if not the most, in terms of swallowing what Jesus is teaching us. It's a hard pill to swallow because he is going to call us to something so high so radically different than the way that the world relates to each other. But as he does that, I want you to keep a couple things in the back of your mind. Uh, One is he's setting out his commands so that we see that we need forgiveness because we will not perfectly do these commands. But then secondly, he wants us to see our great need for the Holy Spirit because as the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, and empowers us to live as followers of Jesus, Jesus is actually pointing us towards what human flourishing looks like in the midst of relationships. So as we go through this, we will see that we need forgiveness, but we will also see what human flourishing could look like. And I want you to imagine that as we go forward. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start with verse 20, which is where we ended last week. We're going to go up through verse 37, and then we'll also throw in there verse 48, because that's kind of the ending bookmark of this particular section. So if you've got a Bible, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 through 37 and 48. Jesus said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come offer your gift. 
reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne or by earth because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. And then to the last verse in the chapter, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of God. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be with us now as we delve into your teaching. Shape our hearts and our lives and our actions and our thinking according to your words, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Have you ever seen the movie, The Incredibles? It's a Pixar film, and it is one of the, one of the best Pixar films, in my opinion. It's a, a movie about a family of superheroes led by Mr. Incredible, and I can't remember his wife's name. We'll just call her Mrs. Incredible. Uh, but they all have superhuman powers, and they're undercover, and they go and fight crime and fight evil together with these superhuman powers. Well, during the movie, we're introduced to this little boy named Buddy. And Buddy is a pretend superhero. He's just a little boy who has no superpowers, but he follows around Mr. Incredible, and he kind of gets in Mr. Incredible's way as Mr. Incredible's trying to fight crime. And so finally, Mr. Incredible kind of snaps at him and says, like, you're in the way, and, uh, and, and has a little bit of a fallout with him. But he sits him down and says, Buddy always be true to yourself. Always be true to yourself. Now fast forward later in the movie, uh, Mr. Incredible is fighting crime and he meets this evil character named Syndrome. And Syndrome reveals that he is Buddy grown up. And Syndrome is evil, he's manipulative, he's maniacal, he damages the relationships of those closest to him. And as he is trying to destroy Mr. Incredible, he says to him, you always say be true to yourself, but you never say which part of yourself to be true to. 
You always say be true to yourself, but you never say which part of yourself to be true to. What he's getting at is that syndrome has been true to the part of himself that is manipulative, maniacal, evil, and self-centered. He has been most true to the part of himself that is self-centered. Now, in our, in our cultural moment, one of the highest values is to be true to yourself. Uh, we hear that a lot. Be true to yourself. The most authentic thing you can do is pursue your own self-fulfillment and, and your deepest desires. But what we forget to ask is, is being true to ourselves actually being true to the part of ourselves that is self-centered? To be, part of the, to be true to the part of ourselves that is self-centered. One of the interesting things, as I said, is syndrome has damaged all the relationships around him. He has damaged his relationship with his partner. He's damaged the relationship with Mr. Incredible. He has damaged his relationship even with himself. And as we pursue this ideal of being true to ourselves, we never stop to look around to see if we're doing any damage, any damage with those relationships that are closest to us, with our significant other or with our spouse or with our God or even if we're doing damage to ourselves. In Jesus' teaching today, he's warning us that there is a syndrome in each of us. There is part of us that is very much self-centered and loves to hear be true to yourself because that part of ourself is focused on self. But Jesus is going to shoot us straight about the damage that we can do to those around us and to ourselves if we live that out. And Jesus is going to call us as his followers not to be true to self, but rather to be true to God. Not to be true to ourselves, but rather to, to be true to our God. And he's going to do it this way. At this time, the scribes and Pharisees, those who were supposed to be true to God, took God's laws and they manipulated them in a way so that they could appear to be obedient and yet still be self-centered. What they were missing out on was taking God's law into the deepest part of their hearts to really see how God's commands were about loving him and loving their neighbor. Not self-centeredness, but self-sacrificial love. And the thing is about God's laws, as we hear them, it automatically convicts us, right? Because we fall short of his glory. But we also have to see that God is laying out in his laws, he's laying out how humanity is to flourish, He's laying out for us how we become who we were created to be by following what he says is and internalizing it. Jesus is going to pinpoint us in three areas. He's going to ask us to examine our syndrome in three areas. First, he's going to uh, uh, look at our anger, at our desires, and at keeping our options open. So he's going to ask us, are you being true to your anger or true to God? Are you being true to your desires or true to God? Are you being true to keeping your options open or are you being true to God? So let's start off with anger. Jesus questions us about being true to the part of us that is angry. 
He starts off with the sixth commandment, and the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. He goes on to say, but I tell you, everyone who is what? Angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Jesus is talking about the the, the actions and the heart behind the actions. Because murder doesn't just pop out of nowhere. It pops up from an angry heart. Now, I know some of us would immediately say, but there is a category called righteous anger. God hates sin. God hates evil. God hates injustice. And there is part of us that can be righteously angry when we see evil and injustice and sin in the world. But there is a thin line. There is an awfully thin line between justice and between revenge. There is a thin line between justice and between revenge. And there's something about being true to our anger in our hearts where we hear God says, say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And we go, amen, and I will help you. I'm on board with that. See, there's a thin line between justice and revenge, and we know that we've crossed into that when our anger turns into contempt. If you look at what Jesus said, Jesus talks about insulting brothers and sisters. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. He's talking about the insults that come from a contemptuous heart, a heart that's grown in anger so much that it sees itself as morally superior to the one who has been the offender. Contempt comes from this place of seeing other people as unworthy or morally inferior because of the lens of anger that you are wearing. And and contempt, contempt will kill. It will kill marriages because one partner will begin to see themselves as superior and the other inferior. Uh, Contempt will kill churches because people will assume that God is on my side and cannot be on their side. And we see right now that in our culture, contempt is dividing us day after day. So we need to ask ourselves, do we want to be true to ourselves? Do we want to be true to our anger? Now, I know that, that some of you have really good reasons to be angry. You do. Stuff has been done to you that has deserves anger. And, and oftentimes, anger can be incredibly empowering in life. Like if you get angry, you can reach your goals. But anger can also be incredibly addicting. Anger can be incredibly addicting where your anger actually becomes part of who you are. And if it gets to that place, it blinds you so much that it can destroy you. Did you catch what Jesus said in terms of warning us about going to court? He, he talks about someone who's so convinced that they're right. They're so convinced by their anger that they're going to beat the person in court that they have an offense against. So they rush to court, and it turns out that they were wrong the whole time. The judge sides with the other person, and the person who was angry and thought they had every right to be in court gets thrown in prison and loses all their money. I mean, Jesus is just giving us a practical example of how we can destroy when our anger. 
Not only can we destroy our relationships with others, but we can destroy ourselves if our anger goes unchecked. And so what we should do is hold our contempt in contempt. We should look suspiciously at our anger. We should not be true to our anger because it's, it's very hard to be true to anger and also true to God. Jesus tells us that the way to be true to God is to make peace with others and reconcile quickly. Jesus gives the example in verse 23 of someone who's going to the temple to worship God. And they come up to the temple mount and they, they enter the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and there in that court, they buy an animal that they're going to give to God as a sacrificial gift. And then they make their way towards the inner court and the priest and the altar where they're going to put their animal up there as a sacrificial gift. But as they're in that process, as they're almost there offering their worship to God, they realize, oh, wait a minute. I'm in conflict with somebody else. There is a situation I'm in with another human being that brings up terrible anger. And Jesus says, well, quickly finish your worship and then go reconcile. No, he didn't say that. He says, stop your worship. Go find that person. Leave the temple. Leave the process of worship and go reconcile with your brother and sister. And maybe that's a good word for us because sometimes we think that we can worship our way out of conflict that we actually need to work through. Sometimes we can, we can sort of cover over what's really going on in us between other human beings and us by raising our hands and worship to God. And what God said is, no, 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 stop what you're doing and go reconcile with that other image bearer. Go reconcile with that other brother and sister in Christ. I, I don't know if you caught it, but Jesus said, if he didn't say if you have something against someone else, Jesus said, if someone has something against you, if someone has something against you, stop what you're doing. Go and reconcile with that brother and sister and then come back to worship. Now, now I know, as soon as I read that, I go, why should I go to them when they're the ones who, you know, you feel that in your heart? <clears throat> each, each week during February, uh, we're going to pull someone from black history to sort of teach us something about the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to pull from a guy named Charles Octavius Booth and ask him to make it plain about what Jesus was saying. A little background on him. Booth was a, born into slavery in 1845. He was born in Montgomery, Alabama. One year after the Civil War ended in 1866, he was baptized. Two years later, he was ordained to the ministry as a Baptist minister, and he really desired to uplift African Americans at that time, and so he worked towards that. But one of the things he noticed as a pastor was that a lot of the theology that was written at that time was written for people uh, that were not the people he was ministering to. The theology books were much more complicated, and he realized that his people need something plain. And so he wrote the book, Plain Theology, for plain people, which has just been republished. It's a great book. This is going somewhere. Booth, in this book, comments on the Sermon on the Mount and makes it plain for us what Jesus is saying. Listen to this quote. Personal offenses should be dealt with according to the plain directions that the Lord himself gave to disciples while yet with them. The duties pointed out in these passages are binding upon both parties the duty to seek reconciliation with each other 
The offended seeks the offender, and the offender seeks the offended. How proper and how beautiful is this rule? Oh, that all would heed it. Uh, Booth is saying to us, you hurt somebody else, go reconcile. Someone else hurt you, go talk to them and reconcile and make peace. Now, this is terribly difficult because we love that place of superiority that our anger gives us. It's so powerful to feel that, that sense of contempt. But Jesus is teaching us not to be true to our anger, but to humble ourselves in order to be true to God. And what does Booth say? Oh, how beautiful. How beautiful is this rule. What if human beings took this seriously? What if we took this seriously? At the first sign of anger, we said, who do I need to go reconcile with? Uh, we, we didn't wait for our spouses to come apologize to us. We went and apologized to them. We didn't, we didn't hold on to vengeance uh, in families generation after generation, but we went and quickly sought reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. Booth is telling us that it's beautiful when we're not true to the part of us that is angry, but rather we're true to God in that part of us that is angry, and we seek reconciliation. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. Jesus tells us to be true to God, but he also tells us to be true to God rather than true to our desires. In the seventh commandment, Jesus mentions, uh, Jesus mentions the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. But he says this in verse 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we live in a culture that tells us uh, part of being true to yourself is being true to all of your sexual desires. And there's no way to say this uh, in a way that's soft. Christianity teaches something really different. Christianity teaches something really different because Jesus teaches something really different. Now, here's the thing. God made sex, and God made sexual desire. And so Jesus is not afraid to talk about sexuality, nor does he think sexual desire is a bad thing because he created it. But he also created it with a design, with a good design. Sexuality is like fire. If it's burning in the fireplace, it is good. But if you take it out of the fireplace and put it somewhere else, it will scorch everything. And what Jesus is addressing right here is our sexual imaginations. Uh, what goes on in our minds as we think about other people? Because ultimately the design is for sexuality to be expressed in the bedroom between a husband and a wife. And, and when our sexual imaginations go wild, it is sexuality happening not with two people, but with one person. One person using the image of another image bearer of God in their mind to fulfill themselves sexually. 
And that is not God's design. And so Jesus is saying there are times when it will feel true to be true to your desires, but in being true to your desires, you're not actually being true to God's design. Now, there is a lot more we could say about sexuality, just a lot more. The Bible says so much more. Last night at the sit-down, Cody did a great job talking a little bit about sexuality and marriage. And about a year and a half ago, we went through a series called Origins, the beginning of identity, relationships, and sexuality. And that's a great reference point for you to go back and listen to. And if you want to have a conversation about this, I'm willing to sit down. Uh, I'm willing to sit down with you and talk that out. But we can't just ignore what Jesus says here. Uh, Jesus is telling us to get savage when our desires are outside his design. He uses this way of speaking called hyperbole. And it's a way of saying, you need to get savage. You need to get serious about this. He says things like, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, he doesn't actually mean for us to gouge out our eye. It's a figure of speech to say, you need to take this seriously, what I'm saying. When your desire doesn't match up with the design, don't sit there and play with it. Get savage against the temptations that would lead you away. So maybe for some of you, getting savage means deleting those apps that you know you know don't take you to a good place in your sexual imagination. Maybe it means putting a filter on on the web so that you can't go where you're not supposed to go. Maybe it means that you have to keep your distance from a certain person just because once you get near them, you can't stop moving towards them. And maybe it means tonight, tonight some of you are going to get texts late at night and someone's going to write you and say, hey, It's Valentine's Day. What are you doing? And by what are you doing, they don't mean what are you doing. They mean what are you doing? Don't answer those texts. Don't answer those texts. You know where they're going. You know where they're going. Get savage against the sin in your life. Even if no one else sees it, God sees it. God sees it. Now, I know in our culture that what I just said is seen as sexual repression, right? Uh, we're told that we're most fully alive when we actually do what we want sexually, not when we repress what we feel sexually. Uh, but, but here, just plainly said, that's not what Jesus says. You'll notice throughout this passage that Jesus uses hell several times. And so you go, well, wait a minute, if I, if I sin sexually once, am I going to hell? Th- that's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is getting at the fact that there are two paths in life. There really are two paths. One that recognizes that what God says is sin is sin and then seeks forgiveness and grace and love and asks the Holy Spirit for help in weakness. And when, and when you stumble, you tell somebody else and you go back to God and you ask for forgiveness and help. That's one path. And the other path is I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And that second path leads to separation from God in this life and in the life to come. See, it's not about being sexually perfect. It's about recognizing what God says is sin and then kneeling before him and saying, I can't do this without you. I need need your help. I need you to purify my, my actions and my thought life. And the truth is, if if we went around and just asked people, hey, 
when you pursued your sexual desires, did it bring flourishing? There would be many people who, if they were honest, would say no. It brought destruction in my own life. And see, Jesus is telling us this because to say no to the desires that are outside of his design is actually flourishing. It's actually being true to God. And so Jesus tells us to be true to God rather than true to our desires and true to God rather than true to our options. Our last point is that Jesus calls us to be true to God rather than true to our options. And, and here he deals with two very difficult things. One is divorce and the other is oaths or making a promise. And, and in our culture, when we think about picking someone to spend the rest of our life with and when we think about committing to things, uh, we like to keep our options open. We like to keep our options open. And so did the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, in that day, there was a law that said if a woman is unclean, you can divorce her. And by unclean, it meant that she had committed adultery. She had slept with another man. But what the scribes and Pharisees did is they, take, they took that word unclean and say, let's make that mean something else. So if she starts cooking stuff that I don't like, and she starts talking back to me a little bit, well, that's unclean, and then I can get a divorce from her. And that way, I'm still obedient to God. See, this is what the scribes and Pharisees did because they wanted to keep their options open. And what happened was the, the, heart, the hearts of the men were so hard that Moses in the Old Testament said, listen, if you're going to be that hard-hearted about loving your wife, then we are going to have to give them a certificate of divorce. And the reason is, is if you just dump that lady out, out of your house, she can't get remarried. Everyone's going to be wondering what's going on and why you dumped her. So you have to give her a certificate of divorce so people know the reason. But the scribes and Pharisees took that reason and made it license. Oh, we can get divorced as long as we give a certificate of divorce. We're still obedient to God and we can keep our options open. And Jesus says, do you see your lack of love for your spouse? In verse 32, he says, but I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, in a, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. Causes her to commit adultery. In other words, see how your superficial obedience is actually a, an excuse not to love the woman you committed your life to. See, the, the, their hearts cared more about their options than the commitment they had made. Now listen, I, I know that the Bible says more about divorce just like it says more about sexuality. I know that when we talk about these things, we need to name things like abuse and abandonment. And, and I'm not trying to say everything there is to say in this sermon, but we can't say less than Jesus says. Jesus does say that marriage is not a contract where if you give 50, I give 50. It's a covenant where I'm 100% in 100% of the time. And part of being true to God is keeping the covenant that we made. Because marriage, by definition, is getting rid of your options. And making a lifelong commitment to one person. Just as the Pharisees did the sort of selfish, underhanded move with divorce, they did the same thing with oaths. What they would do is they would say, well, 
I will make a promise. And if I make a promise by the temple wall, then I can break it. But if I make a promise and swear by God's throne in the temple, then we can't break it. And what they were really coming up with is fancy ways to lie. Fancy ways not to keep their commitment, to keep their options open. They were lying without lying. And what does Jesus say? Simply put, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Like I said, this is probably the most difficult section of the Bible when it comes to ethical teaching. But just for a moment, can you imagine what the world would be like if everyone lived like this? Rather than harboring our anger, we were quick to run to our enemies and seek forgiveness and restoration. Can you imagine what the world would be like if, if we were so careful with our minds that whenever lust came into our minds about another person that wasn't our spouse, we would go, they're not mine. I, I'm going to get rid of that thought. Can you imagine what the world would be like if, if we actually honored every commitment that we made? We were so careful with our words that every time we said yes, we followed through, whether it was in marriage or a legal deal. And every time we said no, it meant no. Uh, can you imagine what the world would be like if we honored our commitments? Jesus calls us to these things because it comes from the heart of God. None of this is busy work. None of this is Jesus sitting down going, well, how can I make this really hard for them to jump over? No, all of these things because come from God's heart because these are God's desire for human flourishing. That's why Jesus ends this session, this session in verse 48 by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what that verse means is God's character, his love and his justice and his righteousness and his mercy and compassion, all the commands come from that. Therefore, don't pick and choose what you decide to obey. Everything about God is beautiful and everything about his law is beautiful. Therefore, look to him and follow what he says. Yet, you and I know we don't even get close fall drastically short of the glory of God. And even though in this passage we see all that humanity was created to be, what hits us first is not our creative imaginations, but conviction. Because we're sinners. And we need forgiveness for all the times that we've been bitter and held on to anger. And we need forgiveness for all the times that we've lied and purposely tried to weasel our way out of keeping our commitments. And we need forgiveness for all the thoughts in our mind that we wish we didn't have and yet we don't know how to stop. And that's why on Valentine's Day there's, there's one relationship that is more important than any of the rest. Because there, one, there was one who was perfect. There was one who perfectly loved God and perfectly loved neighbor. There was one who never gave into temptation. There was one who had every right to be angry when he was innocent and put up on the cross, yet he looked out on his oppressors and said, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
there was one who limited his options so that he could go to the cross and die for you. He made a commitment to pay for your sins, and he followed through, and he did. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King, the one who has died on the cross to pay for every lustful thought we've had or will have, the one who died to atone for all the ways that we have broken our commitments, the one who absorbed the wrath of God, God's anger against our anger. He, he paid for it all. He cleansed us by his blood that was shed on the cross. But it doesn't just stop there. When we kneel before what he's done and before him, he comes to live inside of us. And the perfect righteous one lives inside of us to bring righteousness to expression. It's not just that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, which he did, but he brings his resurrection power into your life so that you can actually look at these things and say, I don't like my lust. I don't like not keeping my word. I don't like my anger, but I can't do anything about it unless someone from the outside comes in and renovates my heart. And that's exactly what Jesus does for broken sinners like you and me. Friends, no matter how far you've fallen short of the glory of God, there is forgiveness. But no matter how challenging you find to live out Jesus' words, there is power. There is power from Jesus himself. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.